Thanks for joining us again at the Canadian Breakpoint, a Canadian infectious diseases podcast by Canadian infectious diseases physicians. I'm Summer Stewart, here again with Dr. Rupina Purewal, pediatric infectious diseases physician in Saskatoon. In this episode, we welcome Dr. Marth Charles, medical microbiologist and infectious diseases specialist from Vancouver, British Columbia, to discuss new advances in molecular diagnostics. Dr. Purewal. Hi, welcome to another episode of our podcast, The Canadian Breakpoint. Today, we have a very special guest with us, Dr. Charles. Dr. Charles has completed an MD, MSc degree from the University of Montreal in 2010. Six years later, she finished her residency in medical microbiology and infectious diseases at the University of Alberta. Now, she's the division head of the medical microbiology and infection prevention and control and Vancouver Coastal Health for the last five years. Her interest lies in more integrated diagnostics, increasing access and quality improvement. She currently oversees urogenital infections and molecular diagnostics at Vancouver Coastal Health. From an IPAC perspective, she's involved in laboratory assessment of self-disinfecting surfaces. Welcome, Dr. Charles. It's a pleasure to have you on the podcast, and I'm uh, delighted to kind of talk about some of these molecular methods and and products. And so obviously, before we start, I would like to disclose that this is an informational podcast and we are no way endorsing a product. So thank you for being here today. Well, thank you so much for having me. Like, I'm really excited about this opportunity to be able to talk. Great. So why don't we get right into it? Because I know a lot of our listeners are excited to hear about BioFire and different panels. So I think to give an introduction to everybody, I would like to see if you can just talk a little bit about some of the molecular-based products that you're utilizing there in Vancouver and really the main differences between them. Um, If you can touch on really from a lab perspective standpoint would be awesome. Okay, so um, I guess I'll probably start by saying that uh, maybe I should disclose my conflict of interest. (laughs) So yeah, I'm part of the the Bureau of Speakers for CFI, but this presentation is representing solely my own opinions and experience as a medical microbiologist at the Vancouver Coastal Health. So I think it's interesting really to have the perspective, the perspective of the lab. So, um, you know, as you mentioned, I'm a medical microbiologist, but I'm also an infectious disease specialist. And I'm trying to kind of bring those two hats when I'm thinking about technologies that are being used in the lab. Before I start, I think it's important for people that are listening uh, in on this topic that the molecular field has been for the longest time a really highly specialized area in the laboratory. Right. So if you look at a lot of our various public health laboratories or reference laboratories, molecular diagnostic was normally a specific area in the laboratory, while all of the people that were working there were a lot of people that had graduated studies. You know, you'll have like the masters, the PhDs, and people that have a lot of training to be able to work in those facilities. So looking back in terms of molecular diagnostic, I think it's important to kind of mention like specific steps that are super important to be able to get to an answer at the end. 
I think everybody has now vivid memories of getting tested for COVID, for example. So if we take a sample that was coming from your nasal pharyngeal area, well, that sample doesn't just contain samples that are, I mean, material that is coming from viruses. You'll mm-hmm. have a melting pot of stuff, right? So you'll right. have the human components, you'll have all of the bacteria that are part of our normal flora. I think we talk a lot about that, what is part of the microbiome of the nose. And then you'll have the viruses. So the first step that any samples that comes in the lab for molecular diagnostic would have to go through is what we call an extraction step. So what we want to do is really making sure that whatever material that we're working with is the material coming, the genetic material coming from the virus. So then what would happen is then once we know for sure that we have the genetic information coming from the virus, what you want to be able is to amplify that signal and then to be able to detect it. So as I said previously, you had a specific area in the laboratory that would do that. And all of those steps that I was talking about of extraction, amplification and detection could have been done on various and different instruments. Right. So I think today what we'll mostly focus on it's the ability of having all of those steps within a black box mm-hmm. in a super easy and fast way of detecting microorganism or pathogen. So I think the big players that we kind of hear about a lot are would be like BioFire. Mm-hmm. So that's the instrument and the company is um, BioMarrier. And then you have Gene Expert that people might have heard about. Gene Expert is the instrument, but it's um, the company's C feed. Mm-hmm. Um, other players that people might or might not have heard about would be things like Roche, that's the big company, and the right. instrument that they have is Liat. And then Kyogene is a little bit like of a later player in the multiplex diagnostic sphere with the Kyostat. Yeah. So. Those are the instruments that we have right now. We call them black box because all of those steps that I've previously described are happening without any intervention from the laboratorian or the technologist. Right. So they all happen without us being involved in the, the process. Wow, that's like amazing that, you know, such a detailed process that and and I'm sure like from a lab perspective standpoint, that cuts down a lot of time for technicians as well and turnaround time as well i would imagine yeah. oh no no for sure those type of instruments are a double-edged sword in a sense because you know as a diagnostician mm-hmm. we want to be able to see what's happening and to be able to also troubleshoot but now we're com- it's completely out of our control really because right. all of the quality aspects are taken into account by the instrument itself so you know it's quite fascinating that we were able to automate and miniaturize all of those part uh, in a way that it makes it way way much easier and and easily accessible not only for the clinicians but also for the laboratorian and um, I know in the past you've mentioned that like respiratory panels, for instance, would be kind of the most commonly used, just like what we talked about with COVID. And I think lots wow. of people are um, kind of familiar with respiratory samples. So what other like we'll definitely go into, I think, all the details of that, because I know you've done a lot of research in that area as well, because it is the most commonly used panel. But 
in terms of other panels, what are what's being offered right now? Oh my God, there's so many. So if we look at the BioMario product with BioFire, and I think that's funny because uh, a lot of the clinicians these days are phoning the lab and they're like, I want a BioFire. And for me, my answer is always like, which one? Yeah, <laughs> because, which, which, what are we looking for here? <laughs> yeah, which one? Because I, I think people are not aware that there's a lot of different panels that are available for BioMario at this point. So there's the pneumonia. So we're talking about lower respiratory pathogen okay. and, and they also have one for that are more upper respiratory tract uh, type of infection. They yeah. also have GI panel. They have a meningitis panel, the ME panel, they call it. They have a blood culture ID. So that's from positive blood culture. Then you can put it into that panel that goes onto the biofire. And I'm also interested to see that they also have what uh, would be like for a joint infection, but I didn't have the pleasure yet to be able to work with that one. But it's just to show that please don't call your lab saying that you want a biofire because there's so many different panels that are available. So it's always more helpful to really be clear about what you're looking for. If you're looking at Gene Expert, I'm not going to name all of the panels that they have because they have more than five. But things that you probably have heard is that they'll have like the COVID flu AB RSV panel. They have uh, cartridges for all sorts of things, like from C diff, neuro, gyne, so STI testing on the gene expert, C diff testing on the gene expert. So they have a quite big array of cartridges that are available for testing. And then in terms of, of the biofire panels, so let's say the rest panel, what are we looking at? So obviously the type of specimen is going to depend on the type of panel and what we're looking for. Um, but what are what are some of the turnaround times that people are looking for looking at? And and what does this really cost for the lab? That's my big question. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So we can talk about the differences between uh, the, the various panels that are available. But I think, I guess I'll just tell you the price. So <laughs> depending <laughs> depending where you are in Canada, I think the pricing might change depending on the contract that you have with those companies. But normally okay. it's in the hundreds of dollars. Okay. And the, the reason why we mentioned this, it's quite significant because for the longest time in the molecular area, we use what we call lab developed tests. Mm-hmm. The lab developed tests are often like super easy to kind of establish in Canada in the sense that if you have your set of primers and then you have your region for your real time PCR. So it's easy in terms of it wouldn't be really costly right. compared to hundreds of dollars for a, a cartridge on a, on a multiplex panel. Mm-hmm. So on the ABI, because uh, that's the real time PCR that we use here. Often, a lot of the tests that we would do would be on the magnitude of less than twenty or ten dollars per patient. Yeah, so a huge difference. So yeah. it's it's significant, right? So mm-hmm. the approach that we took here at uh, my laboratory was to really try to have, you know, like a laboratory stewardship in a sense to try to really make sure that the test that we're doing is providing the answers that the clinicians require to take the best care as possible for their patient population. 
Yeah. And I think that's really important. You know, when we look, we talk a lot about stewardship in the clinical world, but I think kind of taking that into account and from a lab perspective standpoint is really creating that awareness, you know, and sometimes when I'm a clinician, so when I'm wearing the clinician hat, you don't think about these things. You really are just trying to find the answer because the answer is going to help your patient get better or the answer is going to help give us an answer to to you know better treat the patient and and we always think of it more from a stewardship standpoint in terms of antibiotic use and i know that especially with the respiratory panel you've done some work also and research around this area um so probably changing the gear a little bit because i know that we've talked a little bit about you know the costs and the and and some of the i guess advantages and disadvantages of this but really going into what clinicians, you know, the reason that we are ordering these panels, what is some research that you, and do you want to talk a little bit about your research around how you've seen these respiratory panels help us in the clinical world? Yeah, so here at our laboratory, I think the panel with which we had the most experience with was the um, uh, respiratory panel, so the RP1 at the time. So when I joined the lab, one of the research that I was able to participate in was about the utilization of biofire respiratory panel for the BMT, so the bone marrow transplantation unit, and the impact that the utilization of such equipment would have on infection control, but also on antimicrobial stewardship. Right. So we know that that population has a tendency to present with high-grade temperature, <laughs> or fever. Right. Um, and it's always kind of the concern about, well, is it part of their evolution of their disease? Or is it because of an infection? And if mm-hmm. it's an infection, is it due to uh, viruses when you're in the, you know, respiratory viral uh, viruses season? So right. what we were able to show and for people that are curious and want to go and read about it, we had an article titled Biofire Film Array Decreases Infection Control Isolation Time by four days in ICU, BMT and respiratory wards. So this was published uh, by Dr. Wong and all. So I was one of the contributors to that study. But I think the title kind of say it, we were able to show that the utilization of the biofire, despite, you know, the upfront cost to the lab had downside effect in the sense that we were able to reduce the isolation time for those patients. And we know that having patient in isolation is often problematic in terms of the quality of the care that they're getting because often for the nursing staff it's easier to keep the care for last for the people that you know that you have to don and off precaution for right so that's just an an example of how an equipment in the laboratory has a direct impact on the care that patients are getting on the ward right so i think that study was really good and it kind of helped us also build a business case and show value for an instrument that would be used in the lab. The only caveat that I would put there is that it made a difference as long as the laboratory was using this instrument as a stat instrument. And we'll talk about it maybe a a bit later about the impact of having those type of equipment in the lab. It's only true if I'm able to act on the sample right away. So during that study uh, design, what we had done is like all of those samples that were coming from ICU, BMT, and the respiratory wards had to be processed within one hour of receipt. So then the fact that the instrument is so quick, 
you can really capitalize on that because we were putting it on the instrument right away. Right. So I guess what, what I'm trying to say is if if the wards collect the sample and doesn't send it to the lab, or if the lab receives the sample and don't put it on the instrument right away, right. and you lose the benefit of having an instrument that is really quick. Mm-hmm. Definitely. So those are some of the things. And sometimes in the clinical world, as opposed to when we're doing some of the research, we can sometimes find those discrepancies too. Um, yeah. Because sometimes with clinical, there's like delay for like collection, there's delay for multiple reasons for the sample to get to the lab. Probably also depends on like the number of samples that are coming in. Right. And so hence why we always kind of talk about lab stewardship and really understanding, you know, are we sending the sample for the right reasons? And and is this going to make the difference? Because we don't want to burden our lab colleagues either. So, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, no, good point. And I, I also like what you mentioned about it's also knowing the specimen type that you're sending. Yeah, because sometimes if you don't have the conversation with your uh, microbiologist, in the lab, then you don't have that information. But of all the instruments that we have in the lab, some can or cannot process certain uh, certain specimen type. Right. So what I'm trying to say here again is that if the only sample that you can collect on a, on a one of your patients is a tracheal aspirate, well, it might not be compatible to be put on your biofire and therefore you're not getting the result as fast as you were hoping to get it, right? Right. Because then we have to change the methodology to process that sample. That's something else to keep in mind. And that kind of brings me to the um, second paper that we've done in collaboration with the the BioFire, which was the utilization of bronchoscopy samples and try to put that on the BioFire and see that the performance was still fairly good, Mm -hmm. but not as, um, as good as we were hoping it to be so yeah. so right now for us we're not yet putting BALs for example on the biofire yeah. but it's a conversation that we would have with the clinicians in terms of how strong is their pretest probability that mm-hmm. the thing that there's a viral infection going on and then knowing the performance on the test um, yeah. we would decide if we would go that way or not right yeah. So just for our knowledge, for the listeners as well, the best sample right now would be your nasal pharyngeal sample. Yeah. Right? So on the, the respiratory panel. Yeah. So on the respiratory panel on the biofire, the best sample would remain to be the nasal pharyngeal swab. Okay. And then also just because we have listeners that are clinicians, but we also have um, pharmacists and we have nurses. Um, kind of from all across the world. Um, so uh, just to kind of let them know what type of uh, organisms and pathogens are we detecting with like, for instance, the respiratory panel, just to name a few. Okay, so the respiratory panel w- will have like your regular stuff. So you'll find the flu, A, B, RSV, you'll have the COVID. In terms of the other viruses it has the ability of detecting human metanumal virus rhino entero parainfluenza as well right but it has the also the ability of detecting other organisms depending which biofire if you're on the pneumonia panel versus the the rp2 panel so i'm just gonna provide the information for the rp2 so the right. other organism that i was 
thinking about was, for example, certain bacteria, the Bordetella parapertussis, pertussis, chlamydia pneumoniae, and mycoplasma pneumoniae. And then also all of the other uh, human coronaviruses that were known prior to COVID were also part of the RP2. And then for the pneumonia panel, that would also include like strep pneumonia, haemophilus. It'll be able to detect those as well. Yep. If we look specifically at the pneumonia one, so yeah, so it's 33 um, target. And that one would have like stuff more like streptococcus, pyogenes, pneumonia, even some acinetobacter. And the part that I think is also interesting about the pneumonia panel is the ability of detecting some antimicrobial resistance gene. But right. again, this one is not a panel that we had the opportunity or luxury to be able to <laughs> use at my laboratory, but those would be some of the perceived like perks of having that panel. Oh, that would be fantastic. Yeah. But in its own way, right? So sometimes yeah. there could be pros and cons to technology as well. And some of these molecular methods are super sensitive. So I know in the past, you and I have had multiple discussions about biofire versus gene expert. And I know you want to talk a little bit about and tell the audience kind of the differences um, between that, because even me as an infectious disease physician, I could tell you, you know, that I may not know all the differences, including kind of with the sensitivity specificities, the CT values. We always talk about these numbers, but I love to hear it from a lab expert. Okay. Well, I would say that, you know, when you look at the clinical performance or the laboratory performance of the two assays, like Mm -hmm. it's it's a PCR assay. So their sensitivity specificity from a laboratory perspective would be above the 95%, right? So- I think they're pretty similar in in that regards in terms of sensitivity of the assay. To walk you through the differences between the two, what I would say is uh, if we start with CFEED, CFEED is a multiplex panel, but it's limited target. Okay. So as I mentioned, they have a lot of different cartridges that you would have to build up on. But in terms of if we just speak about respiratory panel, they have this combo of flu A, B, RSV, and COVID. So one of the advantages is that it would specifically answer your question because they have also a cartridge that is COVID only. Okay. So I feel like it's a bit closer to what a clinician would do. They would think about like, well, is this influenza? Then you order a gene expert and you will get your answer. It's pretty straightforward. From a laboratory perspective, it's really, really easy to use. As a matter of fact, it's one of the rare multiplex assays that is Health Canada approved to be used as a point of care assay. And we've seen that during the pandemic as well. It is uh, quite fast. So for the respiratory panel that I was telling you about, it can provide an answer within 35 to 40 minutes. And then it used some end fluorescence in terms of detection, but it's, it also has the ability of providing you a CT value. Right. And then overall, it might be a bit a bit cheaper than the the biofire if we're just talking about the respiratory panel in right. terms of the cost to the lab. But if we look at the biofire, this one, as I mentioned, is syndromic and it has more than twenty targets. If we're talking specifically about the respiratory panel, it has also easy to use, but there's no CT available on the biofire. 
Okay. okay. So it's a real, completely real uh, black box in a sense that you cannot see how strong or low of a signal was detected by the instrument. Got it. But it's quite, it's quite sensitive. I've mentioned the five panels that they have also, and it's just that mm -hmm. it takes a little bit more time. So it's just a bit over an hour to get the full panel result. I also think that the BioFire kind of brings a, an ethical conundrum or conversation because it's a syndromic approach. So I think we've been accustomed to do an assessment of your patient, come up with your diagnostic, your diagnosis, and then try to have the diagnostic support your hypothesis. Right. But in this case, you know, you might have been thinking about influenza. You're sending me the sample. You're asking for a biofire, but I'm testing for. 22 other organisms that you have not requested. Right. So I, I feel like it's a, it's a good ethical conversation <laughs> in terms yeah. of bioethics and what do you do with that? And some people would say, well, you only have to report what the clinician has requested. Right. But what if it's positive for something that the clinician has not requested? Can you really hide that information? Yeah. And that's the thing when with all of these reports, I think, is that you can tell us more. But for any of these respiratory panels, you usually get this like line list of pathogens and then it'll just say positive or negative. And then taking that into your clinical context, I think, is can be actually quite challenging because a lot of them have similar presentations. Right. So we're talking about like the exact same patient but you could have multiple viruses. And, and something that I deal with in my clinical world is obviously I'm a pediatrician. So pediatric infectious disease, we're going to see a lot of respiratory illnesses. <laughs> and with PCR testing, although it's great, molecular methods give us a quicker result. We also see those long lasting effects, right? So six weeks prior infections are being detected as well. So you also have to, as a clinician, take into context, like, is this a previous infection or is this really my acute illness? And, and, you know, relying on that. And then let's say I take off antibiotics because I think this is what's going on. Um, is that harmful or uh, problematic in that clinical case? So I think it can be challenging definitely from our perspective too, but I can't even imagine, you know, at least I have the clinical context. And so from your standpoint, being on the lab side of things, and you do both side. So obviously right now I'm giving you the lab hat, but <laughs> being on the lab side of things, it's challenging because you don't get all of that information. You're not fully involved from like day one with the case, you know, and so you get really what we place on the requisition. Yeah, no, it's a good point. Yeah. It's like anything, right? The same way that when you see your patient, you come up with your differential in the laboratory, we also come up with a differential based on the very limited information that we get. Right. So if people could only remember one thing, I guess, from anything that I said today yeah. is get a good relationship with your laboratory and provide more information. The same way that when you send a requisition form to diagnostic imaging, you would yeah. provide with, you know, a little bit of a history. It's the same thing for microbiology, right? So right. a history can go a really long way in microbiology and helping us find what what you're looking for because the reality is people think that the laboratory will find whatever is in your sample yeah but that is not how the lab is made the lab is made to 
identify the common causes of issue for the syndrome that you're talking about or the sample type that you're providing. So right. if you're looking for a zebra, it's always better to get in touch with your medical microbiologist and let them know that you're looking for a zebra. Yeah, exactly. Okay? Yeah. So I think that would be like a, a big, big message. And the other thing that I always kind of use as an example is it's always also important for the clinician to understand the different technologies that we're using in the lab. And we try to have this dialogue with our clinician in a sense that we provide comments with our reports. So you know what we've tested your sample for. And sometimes, I don't know, as a laboratorian, we feel like, were misunderstood or not fully read. Right. So, so the best example that would be, I think I've told you that story, but I, I kind of like that story. It kind of shows us how all those molecular assays are like fantastic to look for the, you know, bread yeah. and butter stuff. But, and also I'll tell you about like the strength of a story. So I use that story <laughs> with the resident a lot. So the story goes as follows, and you can also Google it because it's a true story. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's, um, it's about a family that was presenting with rice water diarrhea. So for anyone who is ID trained or has interest in ID, if I tell you rice water diarrhea, there's a diagnosis that comes in mind right away. Exactly. So that, yeah. So I'm not, I'm not giving the punch just right. <laughs> just I'll keep my, so, I'll keep it quiet over here too. Yeah. 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 So. <laughs> So that sample was sent without a story to the laboratory and then a molecular testing was done and it came back negative, no pathogen found. Came, so of course, we normally get involved when things are not fitting or it's not the result that we're expecting. Exactly. So that's when the conversation happened. But we could have saved time and managed those patients differently if that conversation happened earlier. So what I was describing earlier on was a case of cholera in a family. So it's just an example of like, you can have a molecular assay that detects cholera, but a cholera that is found all over the world, but not the one that you have locally. Exactly, right? yeah. And I think we've discussed that a lot during mm -hmm. the pandemic, the whole conversation about like variant, but in yeah. the bacterial world, you also have like different serotypes, for example. Right. So it's important for a laborartitian to also know the limitation of their technology. Yeah. But from a clinician, I mean, from a physician seeing patient perspective, I think it's also always important to keep the story in mind yeah. and bring the clinical diagnostic combined together and see if it makes sense, right? And so in this case, you weren't able to pick up that specific strain and the serotype. And that's what the PCR was negative yeah. for. So that's why, that's why. So the yeah. PCR was a multiplex. It had the ability of detecting, you know, um, Altor. So one of the cholera that we normally see. Yeah. But then it seemed like we had a different one in BC and the primers would not attach to the genetic information of the one that was local to us. It's just another example of, you know, the history at the end of the day and the clinical yeah. examination of your patient still makes a difference. It's not because the PCR said it's negative that yeah. what you're saying is not infectious, right? Right. Yeah. And I actually deal with this, you know, often because 
people will come in and they have respiratory symptoms, looks like a viral urinary, uh, viral upper respiratory tract infection. And the PCR respiratory panel comes back negative and families will always ask, but I don't understand. Like you said, they have a virus, but the thing to like, we always try to educate our families as well. And, and also teams that we work with as, you know, being a consultant is that you don't always get the answer for which virus it is. You have to be looking for those specific viruses that are on there. Now, if it's a different strain or, it didn't pick up. It could be, I mean, there's multiple reasons, right? We talked about specimen type. We talked about, um, you know, the lab, like the technology itself, right? And and in the end, we also have to remember that it is obviously no longer, you know, it is a machine-based test. And so things can be, you know, not as streamlined as sometimes when it's done by hand, Right. And so because it's done quick, that's fine, but it's also machines can make mistakes. <laughs> and so there could be lab errors, there could be specimen errors as well. And so I always try to, but really important is that you don't have to detect all viruses because I think it goes back to your cholera story is, you know, sometimes you don't pick up the strain or this, the variant or the serotype. Um, so I think that's something that we should all remember as clinicians. In terms of, I know we talked a little bit about the advantages and disadvantages of, I know specifically you've worked a lot with the BioFire respiratory panel. Is there anything that comes to your mind that would be, um, that we didn't talk about today that would be an advantage or a disadvantage that you would want our listeners to kind of remember? Yeah. So, I mean, I think we covered a lot of the various aspects. So if I had to summarize the disadvantages, I mean, We kind of talked about the fact that the cost could have been a bit prohibitive. I think there is some pressure on the laboratory to really be quick at handling those samples to put it on the instrument. So that's pressure on us if we want to be able to show the value of those fast turnaround times. But then related to that, uh, you had mentioned the amount of samples that are coming in the lab at the same time. But the reality is a lot of those instruments like the the gene expert or the liat or the biofire they're limited in terms of how many samples can they run at the same time right so on on average they're all below 20 samples per hour compared to our routine in-house pcr or real-time pcr those can do hundreds of samples within Mm. three hours right so i think that's something else to keep in mind in terms of the low throughput that those instruments have Right. And then I think lastly, it's really like all of the too many targets maybe um, that might not be relevant to certain patient population that we're providing. So that could be perceived as a disadvantage and an advantage. And then in terms of advantages from a laboratory perspective, mm-hmm. you know, I started off this conversation by telling you, well, the people that work in molecular diagnostic have to be like highly, highly trained to use those black boxes you don't need to be highly trained. Like right. often the, the manipulation of those cartridges are super easy. So we can have that step being done by people that are not like the most trained people in our laboratory. Yeah. And other advantages, I mean, I'm in Vancouver, you know, real estate is a real problem. So <laughs> right. a lot of those instruments <laughs> have a really small footprint. So I think it's an advantage. And it can also be interfaced with your LIS. So that makes it even faster for uh, reporting. So yeah, there's a lot of pros, a lot of pros 
and a little bit of cons. <laughs> yeah, I think that's a good, great summary of that. So what is, what's the future then? So what are we looking at? Like, are we, are you validating, is your lab validating additional biofire panels right now? And what's kind of the new thing that's out there? Yeah, so good question. I think there's a lot of conversation about what's going on in the world of molecular diagnostics. So, I mean, the multiplex panels are super interesting. I told you about the pneumonia panel. That's something that we will most likely want to be able to play with. And Mm -hmm. then the sample type, the fact that it's sputum and BL, that's like major and makes sense. Right. So, but that would be probably in the future, the same way with the, the, sorry, the, the joint fluid sample as well. So I think that's going to be super interesting because we know that joint fluid from a smear, when you do the gram smear, Mm -hmm. it's not super sensitive, but if we have the ability of having a multiplex PCR or a multiplex uh, black box that allows you to do early detection, it would make a complete difference in terms of management of those ortho patients. Right. So I think that's exciting. Yeah, definitely. Um, in terms of timeline that are hap- uh, approaching a bit faster for us. So we're interested in looking into the GI. So we've done our validation for the GI panel and we're about to go live with that. So that should be for, um, you know, this summer. And then yeah. we're also look at, looking into the meningitis panel. Right. So I think that also makes a quite a big difference if we're able to detect early on um, any cases of meningo uh, encephalitis. Yeah, exactly. I think from a, I mean, a clinician standpoint, all of this sounds like great because there's a lot of times when you, you know, are, it's challenging, especially, um, like being in Saskatchewan, we have a lot of remote communities and, and sometimes patients are very, very ill. Um, and so receive antibiotics prior to arriving at our center and so for me, the advantage of getting, for instance, like a PCR, um, at least if they've had multiple courses of antibiotics prior to arriving, um, it can at least help me narrow down, um, even from an antibiotic standpoint, right? And so, um, and also kind of figure out what is the most common pathogen, like we always, it kind of takes away that guessing game that sometimes makes clinicians a bit um, uneasy, um, I would say if that's the right term. <laughs> um, so you did talk a little bit about the BCID panel, um, which is, is that currently validated? Like you're, you guys are using that there? So the, we had a chance to work with it and uh, validated it. But the the thing, you know, it's, it's always a balance. The same way that when yeah. we see patients, you're always try to figure out like uh, how much, um any type of management choices you take, how much would it impact your patient? So it's the same in the laboratory. So for us, because our volume of positive blood cultures were so high, so uh, I'm at Vancouver Coastal Health, so we provide service for more than 12 healthcare centers. So we have a fair amount of uh, blood cultures coming in. And on average, we can have like, anywhere between 15 to 20 positive blood culture a day. Okay. So, so trying to put that on the, on the instrument in terms of volume would make it for us impossible to also do respiratory. So we had to make a chance, like, I mean, um, a choice. 
Yeah. So we had to decide like what's more important for us. Is it to get an answer quickly on the respiratory side? Or yeah. do we think that the gain that we would do on the blood culture would make such a big difference? So because of the infection control component related to uh, respiratory viruses, we decided to go that route mm-hmm. because we were f- we were fairly quick at identifying the um, organism on the blood culture. And the other thing that you have to keep in mind is that on the blood culture, it's really, um, it could be anything and everything. Right. Yeah. The BCID panel is limited to a set numbers, right? right? So the moment it doesn't identify your organism, you just delayed by one hour if right. you weren't already on top of it. So we yeah. felt like with our, our workflow, it made more sense to dedicate the instrument on the respiratory panel. Yeah, and that's fair. I think we're also practicing in an era where we have Malditoff and um, other technologies. And so, you know, previously when we just had biochemical tests, I think it was more challenging and we wanted quicker identification. But I think a lot of times, you know, with that MRSA select plates, there's a lot of a lot of uh, technology that's already come through that's uh, making it easier for clinicians, especially um, those practicing in an area where they are using this constantly. No, but I think you're you're bringing up a super valid point in a sense of epidemiology and population is super important in terms yes. of those decisions that you take in the lab. My conversation with you might have been different if 60, 70% of my people that had positive blood cultures were uh, staph aureuses and then maybe 50% or 30% of them were MRSA. So it would make such a big difference to be able to use BCID because it would have a direct impact right away. But that's not really my situation right now in terms of the patient population that we're providing care for. So yeah, it didn't make total sense at the time to go that route. Yeah, fair. And I think, yeah, it's, that's one thing about ID, right? It's uh, infectious diseases, uh, different everywhere, like you cross the border, and it's like a provincial border, and you're facing with, you know, different diseases, different conditions, different demographics, and uh, epidemiology is very different. So I think it's important to always, I think one of the things that I've learned is that there's a lot of technology out there. (laughs) And there's um, a lot of things that we'd want, you know, our labs to be doing. But I think having that conversation, like as clinicians with the labs, you know, microbiologists and having that close connection, that's, I think, really, really important because you can bring up these types of topics and ideas um, and really understand it from, you know, we obviously just want the answer, but the, you know, who's providing us the answer, that also depends, right? We need to figure out kind of what their rationale is behind having one panel versus the other using gene expert over another respiratory panel, that type of thing. So, so you bring up a very, very valid point. That's why it's great having a somebody who's in the field and the lab and the clinical world. So <laughs> is there anything you would want our listeners? I know you mentioned before a couple of key points. Um, is there any anything else you have a burning desire to tell your listeners, you know, from a lab perspective standpoint, that uh, something that they should do and follow and and would be helpful for for our lab colleagues? I mean, I'm going back to what I said earlier. And, I mean, having a history, yeah, r- really, really helpful. So if you guys can provide more clinical information, we'll be better at supporting 
the, the team that is seeing the patient, that's for sure. And I think having conversation with your laboratory as well, trying to understand what kind of technology are being used mm-hmm. can also help you be better at the job that you're doing. So uh, knowing the limitation okay. of the, the instrumentation that you're using is also key. Well, that's a very, very valid point. And I think um, a lot of our listeners are going to enjoy this episode because we don't talk a lot about diagnostic methods and, uh, you know, what's new in in the lab world. So I'm excited um, to have you on our podcast today. So thank you so much for taking the time uh, and this great opportunity for us to learn a little bit of, you know, the different technologies and molecular methods that a lot of us are probably already using and don't even realize um, some of these details and points. So really appreciative. Oh my God, thank you so much. It was a lot of fun. So my pleasure. Perfect. Thank you so much. Have a great day. Thank you, Dr. Purewell, and a special thank you to Dr. Charles. Thanks for joining us. If you've got a topic suggestion, please email us at thecanadianbreakpoint at gmail.com or get a hold of us on Twitter at CA Breakpoint. See you again soon at the Canadian Breakpoint.